the verses on the screen in just a little second. There we go, it all works. Thank you very much, Rena. So, yes, we, we're continuing our, our studies looking at Christ in the Old Testament. And tonight, um, I want to consider how Christ is foretold in the promises that were made to Abraham. Previously, in the first session, we... Oh, is that better? No, it's absolutely fine for me. Helps you see it a bit better, yeah. Uh, previously, um, you remember in the first session, I talked about the ways in which we see Christ in the Old Testament. And one of the ways we see Christ in the Old Testament is through pictures of him. There's people and events in the Old Testament which are like the Lord Jesus Christ in significant ways. Uh, and so um, when you look at the Old Testament and see those pictures, then it makes us think of Christ. But also there are promises in the Old Testament that speak directly of Christ, that predict this coming one. And then in the second session that we did, we looked specifically at one of those promises in Genesis chapter 3.15, where the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so the serpent, the devil, our ancient foe, um, is, is it, the promise in the Old Testament is that the Lord Jesus Christ will come and will crush his head. Tonight, then, we turn to this idea of God's covenant with Abraham. And actually, what we find is that it's one of the most important events in the Bible. In fact, without understanding this event, then it's very difficult to make sense of much of what happens in the Bible. Moses, the author of Genesis, one of the ways he emphasizes this fact is that he covers human history for the first few thousand years in very brief detail. Eleven chapters of the book of Genesis cover thousands of years and it's just snapshots. And then it focuses in from chapters 12 through to 50 on Abraham and his family and doesn't let up for the rest of the Bible. And you're wondering then, well, why this focus on Abraham? What's so significant about this zooming in on Abraham? Um, and I think the reason is that something crucial is happening here. Because the thing you've got to bear in mind is the context of Genesis and where this, where this actually takes place in the book of Genesis. Because at the very start of Genesis, we're presented with this massive problem. The problem, of course, is in Genesis 3 that human beings have rebelled against God and are thus alienated from God. And so God comes along and he pronounces a dreadful curse on them. Uh, he announces that they're going to die he announces uh, problems in their relationships with one another. He announces a curse on the ground, a curse on the snake. And everything then is subject to this curse that falls upon the world because of the sin that has been unleashed upon it. And so the curse is God's judgment on a world that has rejected him. And this is a huge problem then. So what's going to happen then for the rest of the Bible? The Bible starts with this problem in Genesis 3 and so what do we expect that the Bible is just going to continue on with this story of decay until it eventually ends up in ruin and misery and that's the end of the story or as we've seen in Genesis 3 is there a message of hope that God actually in the midst of this darkness is going to bring about salvation is going to bring about a rescue and undo the effects of the fall well that's what we see in Genesis 3 we've got this glimpse of hope but that then doesn't come to fruition until Genesis chapter 12 where 
instead of coming with a curse, God comes with a word of blessing to mankind. And that's the key difference. The curse hangs over humanity. And in Genesis 12, the answer to that problem is announced in God coming with a word of blessing to Abraham. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 and see what God says to Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And this is the word of the Lord. Now what we, what we see in subsequent chapters in Genesis is that God actually repeats this covenant, this promise to Abraham in various different ways. But substantially it's the same, which is why I'm going to focus my attention on this promise as it's made in Genesis chapter 12. And like I said, we need to see it in the context of the narrative flow of Genesis. In Genesis 3, we've got the problem presented. The curse as a result of sin hangs over humanity. And it fills us with dread and fear over how God is going to react to us. But in Genesis 12, God here approaches us with words of hope and words of blessing and life. Because he says that sin and death here, they're not going to have the last word because God is undoing the devastation caused by the fall and the way he's undoing it is announced through this promise that's made to Abraham. But I want to point out three things about this promise that's made to Abraham. Firstly, he tells Abraham that he wants him to leave his, uh, to leave his country and go to the land that I will show you. He spells out a bit more clearly in verse 7 as well. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so the first feature of the promise that we actually see is that God is promising to give a place to Abraham, a land to Abraham where Abraham can live in the presence of God. And this actually answers the judgment that was announced in Genesis chapter 3. God announced that there would be a curse on the land, that it would be subject to frustration because of sin. More than that, Adam and Eve, they've been cast out of the garden where the presence of God actually was, and they are thrust out, and the cherubim placed in the east side of the garden so that they can't actually get back in again. But now God is promising that he's going to bring people to the land where he's going to be with them. So this is a promise that undoes part of the effect of the fall. Secondly, um, God promises that he's going to make Abraham into a great nation. He says, I will make you into a great nation. And indeed in verse verse 3, he says that all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And so, you know, you think back to Genesis 3 and you can think about the curses that were announced in terms of the death of human beings. 
in terms of the fact that we bring forth children with pain uh, in the case of Eve. And you wonder, where's humanity going to end up because of this curse that's been announced upon them? And here God is coming in blessing and saying, there's not going to be an end to human beings. Death isn't going to be the end. I'm going to make of you a great nation and all peoples on the earth will experience blessing through you so that death will not have the last word. And thirdly, of course, the great contrast between this and Genesis 3 is the fact that God comes here, as we've already said, and he says, I will bless you. Not because of anything that Abraham's done, not because of anything that Abraham has done to merit favor with God, because Abraham, remember, he's a rank pagan. He worships idols. And God plucks him out of that idolatry and paganism and comes to him and out of pure grace says to him, I will bless you. And more than that, he says, you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And so as we we look at this passage, we see that the the blessing language is is flowing right through it. And where curse does appear, where where a curse does appear, it's whoever curses you, I will curse. So the curse falls upon those who reject the way of salvation provided through Abraham and his descendant. So we look at the passage like this here and we think to ourselves, well, where's Christ in this passage? Um, And there are two ways in which we could see Christ. Remember I I said that there are basically two ways in which we can see Christ in the Old Testament. One is through pictures and the other is through promises. And one of the ways we could look at a passage like this here is to see Christ as a picture, being pictured through Abraham. And it it would be entirely correct to look at Abraham in that way. Abraham, he's a covenant head, just as the Lord Jesus Christ is the covenant head of the new covenant and brings blessing to the people. You could think about how Abraham brought blessing to the world. And you think, well, so Christ brought blessing to the world as well. And that would be correct. It would be right to think about it that way. But what I want to do is actually to think about how this is actually specifically a promise that's fulfilled in Christ. That this language isn't just thinking about Abraham and his immediate circumstances and the nation that will flow from him. But it's thinking very specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important to read the Bible this way simply because when we read the Bible in this way we see that it's one connected plan of redemption that centers on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ isn't an afterthought it's not that we we make up Christ in the Old Testament it's that he is actually predicted in the Old Testament and so that when he comes he actually fulfills all of those promises and it's no surprise then in many ways what God has done because God has told us about it in the Old Testament um more than that, this is the way that the New Testament writers read the Old Testament. Of, co- of course, they did also look for pictures of Christ as well. I'm not trying to play those off against each other. But they looked at the Old Testament and they saw that it was purposefully and deliberately predicting the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we want to see how, how the New Testament writers handle a passage like this here, then we need to look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 7. So in Galatians, cha- or Galatians chapter 3, rather, and verse 7, Paul, he's talking to the Galatian Christians, and they've got a bit of a problem with how they are accepted before God. Um, Many of them were saying to themselves that actually they needed to submit to the the law given at Mount Sinai and submit themselves to that covenant in order to be right with God. And Paul, in essence, says to them, that isn't the way that Abraham learned from God. The way that Abraham learned from God was that you accept God's righteousness as a gift. You're right by faith. 
And that covenant is actually more fundamental than the covenant that was given at Sinai. You need to understand what the way that Abraham was right with God before you can make sense of what happened at Sinai. So he says to them in verse 7, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 12. This is the gospel in advance. All nations will be blessed through you. Verse 9, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And the law is not based on faith. In the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung in a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And he says, then, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established. So it is in this case, the first covenant's the important one. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed or offspring, it means the same thing, meaning one person who is Christ. And what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So the gist of what Paul is saying here is that basically there's two different ways of living before God. One is through living under the way of the Sinai covenant, the way that you've got to obey everything that God requires, and if you don't measure up, then you're under a curse. But of course, we all then end up under the curse precisely because we don't measure up to God's standards. We cannot measure up to God's standards. But Paul then says that there is another way. There's a way that's much more fundamental, and it's the way which was shown to Abraham. The way that was shown to Abraham in the covenant with Abraham was that, was that God gives his blessing undeservedly. Uh, he gives it to those who have no merit of their own. And this is far more fundamental than the way at Sinai because it came first. And so whatever we make of Sinai, we've got to understand that the promise made with Abraham is the one that we need to understand. That tells us how we are right with God. Now I want to highlight several things that Paul says in this passage. He, he says in, in verse 8, if, if we look at it here, that the gospel is announced in advance to Abraham. And so Paul reads the Old Testament as containing the message of the gospel that would later come through Jesus Christ. And he says that when it says here, all nations will be blessed through you, this is a specific prediction of the gospel, that all the nations will be blessed through one of Abraham's descendants. Notice too in verse 10 through to 14 in these verses here that the contrast is between the, the grace of God given through the Abrahamic covenant and the curse of the law 
The curse that is codified in the law is nothing other than the curse that fell upon humanity in Genesis chapter 3. There's two ways of living then. Either we experience God's curse or we experience God's blessing. And the way of experiencing God's blessing is being announced through these promises given to Abraham. And finally, notice something that's really important that Paul points out. When we read Genesis 12, it, it talks towards the end about being given to Abraham's offering, offspring, to your offspring, I will give this land. And, and so Paul reads that and he says, right, so this whole promise is being given to Abraham's offspring. And he picks up on the fact that it doesn't say, and to offsprings or and to, and to your seeds, speaking about many people. It's speaking about one specific person and to your seed or offspring, meaning one person. And Paul is very, very clear, that's Christ. That's how we read it. Uh, now, now, Paul is... He's not stupid. He knows that a word like this here, seed, can have a collective sense to it. But what he's saying is that the fact that Moses writing Genesis specifically chose a singular word is very significant when we see God's subsequent redemptive plan. Because here God is announcing that blessing is going to come to the world through one of Abraham's descendants. Christ. That's the one who brings the blessing. So... It is with Paul's authorization then that I turn back to Genesis chapter 12 and think about the various different aspects of the, the work of Christ as being portrayed through this. And I want to, to show then that I'm not reading something into this that isn't there. This is how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. So first let's think about this idea of blessing. God, he comes along and he says that he will bless Abraham. I will bless you. And, and then he goes on to say, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the, the blessing just sweeps through this passage as God is saying that not only is he going to bless Abraham, but he's going to make Abraham a channel of blessing to the whole world. So Abraham's going to be like a funnel and God's going to pour his blessing through Abraham. And not only is it going to go through Abraham, but it's going to channel down to one of Abraham's descendants, his offspring that the passage talks about. And through that offspring, the blessing is going to channel out to the whole world. And all of the nations on earth are going to be blessed through Abraham's descendant. And this blessing that God brings, it's the reversal of the curse. The alienation that we experienced as a result of our sin against God is being undone through this as God is announcing blessing to those who come to know him through this covenant. And so what God is doing here is an act of sheer grace to Abraham, making him a channel of blessing to the world. The surprising thing is that Abraham, he sometimes lives up to this, but he doesn't do it very often. You look at Genesis chapter 12, later on in the chapter, after God gives this promise that he's going to be a blessing to the world, and you think this is going to be the change in everything. Abraham, he's going to just shower blessing wherever he goes, and he goes down to Egypt because there's a famine. And he, he lies about his wife, Sarah. Sarah gets taken into Pharaoh's harem. 
And so judgment falls upon Pharaoh's household. And Abraham is sent packing precisely because of the judgment that he's brought on, on Egypt. And so, so we see from, from the very start, Abraham isn't bringing blessing to the world. It's not, thankfully, it's not the, the sole story about Abraham because you do see him at nobler points in his life. Genesis chapter 18 is one of those noble points in Abraham's life where he stands before God looking at the, the, the coming judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah and he intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah and asks God if there would only be a few righteous people in that city, would God not spare it? Surely the judge of all the earth will do right. And... You see him acting very nobly there, even as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ interceding on behalf of those who don't know God. And yet even Abraham's intercession doesn't stem the tide of God's wrath on those cities. And you fast forward, you know, looking at Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and there's at times when they bring blessing to the world, but generally the track record is that they don't. And when you get to the point where they, they leave Egypt, they go through the wilderness, they go to the land of Canaan where God wants them to be a light to the Gentiles, the light to the nations around them. He wants them to bring blessing to the world and they do not bring blessing to the world. They become like the nations round about them. They fall into idolatry to the extent that when Paul reflects in the history of Israel in Romans, he says that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of what we've done. That's his summary of Israel's history. And the flow of Israel's history then, the flow of redemptive history, is simply to point out that Abraham doesn't fulfill these promises. And, and, and nobody fulfills these promises in Abraham's line of descent uh, right through history to the extent that when the prophets look at what God's going to do in the future, they prophesy of a coming one a coming one who will actually fulfill what is promised in these words of blessing. So Isaiah, he writes, uh, speaking the words of the Lord, is it is too small a thing for you, the Messiah, to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. It's going to do more than just restore Israel, bring blessing to the nation. I also will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation, this blessing, may reach to the ends of the earth. And so the prophets look forward to a day in the midst of their own sorrow about the state of Israel. They look forward to a day when a coming one will come and will fulfill all that was promised to Abraham. Uh, one who will bring blessing to Israel and to the world. And so we, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we see someone who brings, brings God's blessing perfectly, who, who mediates God's blessing to the world in an unparalleled way. We see him driving out evil spirits. We see him healing the sick. We see him forgiving those who are sinful and oppressed by sin. And he's bringing blessing to the world so that John can look at him and say, um, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to exacerbate the curse, but to save the world through him. And so it's wonderful to actually look at the earliest pages of scripture in passages like Genesis chapter 12 and see that this was God's plan of redemption from the very beginning. God wanted to rescue the world. God wants to shower blessing upon the world because God's heart is just overflowing with the desire to bless, to show goodness to people that don't deserve it. And if you're anything like me, there's been times in your life 
yes, before you were a Christian, but even as a Christian, when you felt the weight of sin, the guilt and shame of sin, when it hangs about you like a millstone and you feel so ashamed of what you've done. Um, and we realize then that there is a just curse that fall up, falls upon those that, that don't please God, that disobey God. And, and at times we feel perhaps, well, maybe God's angry with me. Maybe God hates me. Maybe God sees me with judgment in view. And at such moments, then, we need to be reminded again of the gospel. The gospel as recorded from the very beginning in, in Genesis chapter 12, that God wants to bless. He comes to Abraham, who doesn't deserve it, and says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And he's not just saying that, Abra he's not saying that Abraham will be the one that brings that blessing directly. He's saying that one of Abraham's descendants, it's through Abraham, and one of his offspring, that the blessing will come to the world. And when we grasp hold of those words and the, the sheer grace of them and how they undo the curse by showing that God's heart towards us is blessing, then we can rest assured that God does not count our sins against us. And indeed, the beauty of the gospel, the very logic of the gospel, is spelled out to us in Galatians chapter 3, where, where Paul, he, he shows, that you see, Galatians chapter 3, when I go back to it there, where Paul says that, that the way that the curse is undone for us and that the way the blessing comes to us is through the fact that Christ, verse 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Remarkable words, that the way that the Lord Jesus Christ undoes the curse that hung over us, the way that he brings blessing to us, is by embracing the curse himself, absorbing the curse. All the judgment that we deserved is there taken by the Lord Jesus Christ so that what he channels out to us is not judgment, but grace, blessing to all that will come to him by faith. So Christ then is the one that brings blessing to the nations. Then um, we see the other thing to note about this covenant is that it's not just blessing that's promised, but there's a, a people that's promised. So God, he, he promises to Abraham that um, he will make him a, a great nation. I will make you into a great nation there in verse 2. And then he goes on to say, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And at first you think to yourself, well, why does it say he's going to make him into a nation? And then it says that he's going to bless all peoples through him. Why does it not just say one or the other? And the point simply is that there's a progressive outworking of God's purposes in this promise. Initially, it is a nation that's blessed. This nation that springs forth from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it, we see them in Egypt flourishing into a nation so that by the time they leave to go to Canaan, they are a great nation. We see that. 
But in God's redemptive purposes, then, it expands out so that when Jesus Christ comes, it expands out to all the nations of the earth. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, then, is the heir of this promise. And it's no surprise, then, when we see him at the end of his earthly ministry, he gathers his followers together before he ascends back to heaven. And he says to them, in those wonderful words that we've got above the door and the way out, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Because he understands that through his work, the Abrahamic covenant is coming to fulfillment. This is deliberately in his mind that this blessing that came through Abraham and through him is now going out to all the nations of the world. And so the people of God is being expanded out the bound, being expanded out beyond the boundaries of national Israel and being ex, uh, ex, it's being expanded out to all the nations of the world. And so when we get to the book of Acts, then it's no surprise that we see it progressively working out. The book of Acts begins in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. And Paul ends up preaching the gospel in Rome to people that had got no idea about God. And so we see this wonderful that progression of the gospel expanding out through the early church. Paul himself would have struggled to come to terms with this idea that God was expanding the boundaries of the people of God. He would have struggled with that because he thought very much in terms of God's covenant with Abraham being made with a people who were ethnically pure, who were circumcised and so on. And yet even he comes to the point where he says in Galatians 3 that those who are of faith are children of Abraham. That's who the descendants of Abraham are. That's how Paul himself is defining what it means to be a descendant of Abraham. And this is true then for Gentiles as well as much as for Jews in Paul's mind. So you see that from the very outset of redemptive history, what's God doing? He's not just pouring out blessing on people so that they are right with him, so that their alienation is taken away, so that they're reconciled to him. But that God through Jesus Christ has got a purpose to bring a people to himself he, he wants to bring together a, a people of God that would be gathered around Jesus Christ and would be markedly different. And it's wonderful then for us to know that we have become part of this people who from all nations of the world actually belong to Jesus Christ we are the fulfillment of the promises that are made to Abraham right here. We are the delight of Jesus Christ who, who loves to be able to fulfill this and to bring together people from all different backgrounds and all different nations and shower his blessing upon them. And so part of the joy of salvation is not only knowing that our sins are forgiven, but to know that, we're being brought, that we've been brought into this new people, this new community that belong to God. And in that new community, we are given a new history, a history that extends as far back as Abraham, our father. We're given a new identity, a citizenship in the city of God. We are marked as God's people and a new future that extends into eternity yet to come where we will be in the presence of God. And so the joy of salvation, the joy of this blessing that comes to Abraham is not just individual, that individually people are saved, but that it brings people together. And in a visible way, this is actually displayed in, in a gathered body of believers, the church, 
whereby we actually mark out what it means to live as the people of God and hope for that day when we will all gather together as one under the headship of Jesus Christ and show that we are his people. And so then we are formed into a people through God's promises to Abraham. And the final aspect of the covenant I want to consider is the the promise of a place for God's people. God, through Christ, he comes to us in blessing. He, He assures us then that he wants to bless us. He makes us into a people. And then he brings us to a place. This is part of the covenant promise. So God approaches Abraham and he says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And so Abraham goes, takes his takes his stuff and his servants and he heads and his nephew Lot and he heads out to the land of Canaan. And at the time the Canaanites were in the land and the Lord appeared to Abraham and he said, to your offspring I will give this land. You notice then there that he's speaking specifically about the offspring singular. That's who's going to receive the promise of the land. Now obviously we do see an initial fulfillment of this. When after God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, he takes them through the wilderness and he brings them to the promised land of Canaan and they do possess the land. But as we've seen, Paul takes this language of offspring as being very significant and he doesn't want to play fast and loose with that and gloss over it. He believes that this offspring is none other than Christ. And so Paul reading this would tell us that actually Christ is the one who is the possessor of the land. But hold that thought, and I'll come back to that thought in just a second. Think about the significance of the land promise. And I've already alluded to this. Genesis 3. If we see what's happening here in Genesis 12 as being the undoing of the curse of Genesis 3, then the problem of Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve, human beings, have been cast out of the Garden of Eden, and God puts the the cherubim in the east of the garden and the people and Adam and Eve are cast out cast out into the east and so Abraham actually he is eastward when he's given this promise and what God's going to do is he's telling Abraham that he's bringing him back westward to this promised land the point is that whereas in Genesis 3, the people were thrust out of the presence of God, now they're being brought back to the place where God is. Now they're being brought back to be with God. And the significance of the land is that it's God's place. This thing gets fleshed out in the history of Israel where they recognize that this place is God's place. And so they, they set up the tabernacle according to God's command, the place where God is, God's tent. And this becomes so significant that David, his chief goal is to build the temple for God. And Solomon is the one who actually accomplishes that and builds this temple and it becomes known as God's house. It is the place where God lives with his people. Not that God's confined to it in some way, but that God makes his, his presence known there in blessing because he meets with his people to shower blessing on them. That's why he refers to it as, as his house. So then we think to ourselves, so in what sense does then Christ fulfill a promise like this? If he's the offspring to whom the promise is given, how does he fulfill it? Well, just as the New Testament sees the promise of blessing being expanded outwards from a single nation to all the nations of the world, 
So also the New Testament sees an expansion in this promise which begins with a single piece of land and expands outward to the whole world. And if you think I'm just making that up, then you can have a look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul says that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. So Paul's understanding of this, and consistent with Judaism of his time, was that this wasn't just a promise that Abraham would possess a strip of land, but that God's promise was far more expansive than that, that it would cover the entire world. And so what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do is he's going to bring us into a new world in which righteousness dwells, where sin is no more, and we will be in the presence of God. And all of that waits a future fulfillment. And yet, even now, don't we hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 14, where he says to us, my father's house has many rooms. Father's house, temple language. He's talking consistently in John's gospel when he talks about his father's house. It's a house of prayer. He's talking about the temple. Uh, And so the temple had compartments in it, rooms. And so he says, my father's house, and he's not just speaking about an earthly temple, he's speaking about the presence of God. It has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? What's he going to do? He's not trying to prepare some some materialistic joys for us. No, what he's trying to do is emphasize for us, he's preparing a place with God for us. And yet, it's, it's a tangible thing. It, it awaits fulfillment, because when John picks up that kind of language again, it's in Revelation. And John, the same writer, and he thinks about how we are going to be in God's presence in the future. And he thinks about the temple as being the place where God dwells. And, and he says in Revelation 21, 22, in this vision, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. That's who we're with. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And who comes into it? The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Again, a fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham that all of the nations, the great and the mighty, bringing all of their splendor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and laying it at his feet. Because he is the one who has brought us out of exile, brought us out of the place where we were alienated from God and has brought us into the presence of God to enjoy the presence of God through Jesus Christ for all eternity. Now there's much more that I could say about that. But let me just wrap it up at that point. What we see is that in Genesis chapter 3, we get the great problem presented to us, the problem of our sin and rebellion against God. We had turned away from God and had no rights to know God's blessing, no rights to be part of God's people, and no right to be anywhere near God. And yet God comes to us in Genesis chapter 12, and he says to Abraham, not that he's going to lay a curse on him, But he says to Abraham, out of sheer grace, I'm going to bless you. And through your descendant, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. A blessing that extends so far as to remove all of our guilt and shame. A blessing that extends so far as to gather us from every corner of the world. To belong to a new people, not marked by ethnicity, but marked by belonging to Jesus Christ. And brought together in this blessing to know that one day we will be in God's place. 
that we will see his face and never more will we be cast out. There'll be no more exclusion from being with God. We'll never feel any distance anymore. But in fulfillment of God's promise, we will be with him and will enjoy him forever. Let's pray and give thanks to God for this. Gracious Father, we thank you most joyously for the blessing that was in your heart from 